Renal transplantation improves quantity and quality of life compared with chronic dialysis. A UK general practice with 8,000 patients will have around four patients with a functioning renal transplant, one patient on the transplant waiting list and several under consideration for transplantation. The BMJ have recently published an education article on renal transplantation in adults to address some of the questions that non-specialists and GPs might have about managing patients who are both waiting for a transplant and are post-renal transplant. I'm Kate Adlington, Clinical Editor at the BMJ, and I'm joined today for this podcast by two of the authors of this article, Tom Nieto, Clinical Research Fellow from the Renal Services at the University of Birmingham. Hi, Tom. Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining us. And also joined by Paul Cockwell, Consultant Nephrologist, also from Renal Services at the University of Birmingham. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Kate. So to start, um, you've already alluded in the the introduction um, to the article, and as I've just said, how commonly GPs might encounter patients who are both waiting renal transplant or have previously had one. Why did you think it was important to write this article for GPs and non-specialists? In short, so whilst the overall numbers of people who have had kidney transplants will be looked after in any given general practice are low, the larger pool of patients, that is patients with uh, chronic kidney disease 4 or 5, represent um, about half a percent of the adult population. It's not infrequent that patients will will bring up kidney transplantation. I look after patients in their 80s and 90s who will ask me whether or not uh, they could have a kidney transplant and to be able to have some uh, information that gives the patient some direction in that situation is very useful. And, and presumably that conversation won't just be limited as well to those people with the chronic kidney disease, but also possibly their relatives, carers, um, and particularly with the issue of living donor um, transplantation, that there might be people who might come to their GP to ask for information. Yes, that's right, Kate. The benefits of living kidney donation compared to deceased donation, which is discussed in brief in the article, are, are well proven. And one of the challenges particularly for the specialist community, that is kidney specialists, is to signal early in patients who are likely to end up in end-stage renal failure that living kidney donation is a really important option. So signaling that option at an early stage is important because, of course, the focus may well be on the recipient, but very careful management, communication and assessment of the donor is important. And that in itself is a, is a process that takes most renal units around four to six months from the time they start assessing a potential living donor for transplantation to the time that the donor signed off to donate that kidney to a close uh, friend or family member. Then how long until actually that, that operation, the, the actual transplantation takes place usually? Generally, you are looking to transplant preemptively, that is before the patient has complete renal failure, within six to 12 months of them getting to complete renal failure. Now, projecting when a patient has complete renal failure can be challenging. 
And one of the things I'd encourage people who are listening in to go and look at is the renal risk calculator, which we've provided a link for in the article, which provides accuracy about projecting. And we're increasingly using that in clinical practice to allow us to identify the timing around transplantation. Now, if you've worked somebody up for, to be able to donate, but that individual will need reassessment if more than two years has lapsed between the time that they've been fully worked up and the time of the projected transplant or the proposed transplant. So we've talked a little bit about living donor transplantation. How about those kidneys that come from deceased donors? How are they classified? So there are two broad categories of uh, deceased donor um, kidneys available. There's a donation after circulatory death or DCD kidneys, um, which are defined as patients which have had five minutes of asystole. And then there's donation after brain death, um, or DBD, which is confirmed on brain stem testing. Um, and these, when the decision is made uh, by the family or an advanced directive that the wishes are to donate this organ, um, the uh, BT, uh, NHS BT, um, NHS blood and transplant, are informed. And uh, these kidneys are matched uh, to a centralised waiting list, um, which will allocate or potentially allocate these, these organs to a recipient. Um, and then once that allocation, so that's a nationwide allocation system, presumably, based on the information that NHS blood and transplant hold for all the people on the waiting list. Um, yes, that's right. And w- once a local centre has been sort of alerted that they have a match for one of their patients, what happens at that point? Uh, so if a potential match is... Is, is identified. Uh, the patient will be called by one of our one of the transplant coordinators um, and brought into the hospital uh, in preparation for uh, for transplantation. Um, it's a slightly variable um, variable feast for the patient in the sense that the organs can be travelling from differing distances, um, especially in uh, DCD kidneys or after circulatory death, uh, treatment is withdrawn and that again leads to uncertainty about the timings of, of transplantation. Um, but there are, are measures that we have to undertake when the patient is admitted so we make sure the patient is indeed well or fit for the transplant or as fit as they can be. Um, we assess them clinically and take um, blood tests, x-rays, ECGs and ensure that all their other preoperative investigations are up to date. And is it ever the case that you will bring more than one uh, person in if you have one more than one person who's a match locally? Mm, what normally happens is that we, we bring the person who's highest on the waiting list, but there will also be a number of backup uh, options, but they're not brought into hospital mm. uh, unless the first patient is found to be unsuitable or, or, or the kidney is unsuitable for them. Mm-hmm. And... Once um, it's been confirmed that they're fit for the transplant and the um, the donor kidney arrives, what what's the process in terms of preparation for um, the operation? And what's the process during the actual transplant? Broadly, what, what happens? Uh, so the transplant organ arrives uh, in the operating theatre. The surgical team will be ready to to receive that. Um, 
the organ is unpacked and what we call it picking the the kidney uh, that's where it's assessed um, on the back bench to ensure that the anatomy is as described um, there's often more than one renal artery or sometimes two ureters for example and that needs to be uh, understood before transplantation occurs um, we also need to make sure there's no gross injury to the kidney uh, which again occasionally happens in retrieval which isn't identified um, and that the kidney is flushed through uh, adequately perfusion fluid. Um, and once all that is confirmed, we can then uh, call the patient down to theatre and, uh, and begin the transplantation process. And how long does that um, usually take? Uh, usually about two hours. Um, but again, it depends on uh, a number of factors. So um, if the patient's had a transplant before, for example, it can um, make access to the uh, the iliac vessels more challenging, uh, which takes more time. Mm -hmm. And then, in terms of post, sort of immediate post-operative um, care, what are the key things that uh, need to be managed, and what are the kind of immediate post-operative complications um, that you would be looking out for? Uh, so the patients are all managed in a, a level two high dependency unit, um, which allows for very close monitoring. Um, Postoperatively, they have uh, CVP lines in to uh, measure fluid, to help measure fluid status. Um, they don't routinely have arterial lines uh, to monitor blood pressure. Um, obviously, high-risk patients may have that, um, but we ensure that the mean arterial pressure is above 80, uh, well, that's the aim, uh, to ensure good perfusion of the kidney. Um, we look at other parameters such as urine output, um, to, to help guide us. And in terms of immunosuppression, we'll go on to talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but um, is that something that starts immediately um, post-transplant? In some patients, is it something that is even given before transplant? In a cadaveric, it's a slight difference between cadaveric and living uh, transplantation. Um, a cadaveric transplant, we would give um, immunosuppression on induction of anesthesia um, and then begin the course of immunosuppression from there. Uh, in a living donor, we, we often preload the patients um, on tacrolimus prior to the operation, it being an elective procedure uh, and knowing the timings, it's easier to do that. Um, but because there are so many variables within um, deceased donation, um, it's not usual that we, we preload the patients. The protocol um, before, during and after the operation is a, is a tight protocol and what one is doing is effectively trying to maintain the patient in as stable a situation as possible so their normal physiology can, can kick in and if you look at the way that uh, transplant services are structured the way they're structured is usually for the surgical and medical team to work very closely together in terms of managing the patient post-operatively. So it's done across specialty areas and will be usually done with, with, with twice daily senior-led ward rounds, which will include both surgeons and physicians, and then adjustments outside of those times with specialist cover. And that's a really important component of care. It's the accuracy of the early care that has a major impact on long-term outcomes of patients. 
And and that initial care in hospital is, I, I see from the article, sort of it's usually the average length of stay is about nine days. But then follow-up post-discharge seems to be just as um, sort of intensive in a way with is it sort of twice-weekly clinic visits at first gradually becoming less common. Um what happens in those what what happens in those sort of initial clinic appointments and going forwards uh, so initially we we see them in the surgical clinic uh twice a week um we make sure there are no uh, early surgical complications um make sure the wound is healing adequately for example the patient is in a lot of pain post operatively um but also we we check um renal function um it's important for monitoring uh, immunosuppressive levels. So uh, tacrolimus is, is the immunosuppressant that is um, dose, dose level dependent. Um, and really, it's it's very close post-operative monitoring that, that we ins- that we look at. Um, we also make sure the blood pressure is is well controlled. For example, in the article, very useful figure three, which lays out all the different potential complications, sort of both very early through to later kind of just to summarize what what are the most common complications that you might be looking for um sort of early on in your clinics but then thinking about from the perspective of gps or non-specialists later complications that they might be picking up in in gp practices for example um, I mean, I suppose I can cover the the early complications, and um, Prof. Cockrell may want to um, cover the the later ones. Um, I mean, the early complications would be normally directly as a result of uh, the surgery. So, for example, uh, bleeding at the anastomotic sites um, or a urine leakage again from the anastomotic site. Um, but we also find um, renal artery stenosis. Uh, and ureteric stenosis as well. Often we put a ureteric stent uh, in the transplant ureter to uh, mitigate that risk. And it's not always a straightforward linear recovery for the patients. There's um, a number of investigations that may have to be undertaken if the renal function is um, is declining or or not improving as we'd uh, we'd expect to rule out uh, transplant kidney hydronephrosis and um, and ensure good perfusion of the kidney. Um, usually the initial investigation for that is an ultrasound scan, um, but more more complex investigations can be undertaken, for example, um, MRA imaging of the renal artery if, um, if there's a renal artery stenosis suspected. You're really focusing on the, on the transplant function as one major component of follow-up, and as Tom has said, there's um, physical things that go on around the transplant itself, particularly in the early post-operative period. So what you're looking at is what the patient's creatinine baseline's at, and then you're looking for changes around that. As you get to a week to, to 10 days after a transplant, then the immune system starts to become active in terms of its ability to drive organ rejection. The highest risk area for that then is within the first within the first six to eight weeks after a transplant. That's one of the reasons for bringing people back frequently is that often people are well on their return and making a good recovery, but there'll be a change in kidney function. The problem with changes in kidney function is that there's, there's a, a significant differential diagnosis of which rejection is one, but also there are causes where treating patients for rejection blindly would 
be a significant risk to that patient. For example, there are there are intrarenal infections, in particular, um, a viral infection called polyoma or BK virus that can affect up to one in 20 patients and can lead to a decline in kidney function. And of course, in that situation, you don't want to increase the immunosuppression. Mm. As you then transition through into about four to six weeks, then the immunosuppression is really kicking in at that stage in terms of its impact on the immune system. And the principles of immunosuppression for transplantation are broadly similar to a number of immune-mediated diseases. So when general practitioners and non-specialist clinicians are thinking about patients who are immunosuppressed, one of the ways to think about that is to understand that the targets for immunosuppression are are, are, are often T-cell focused. And as a consequence of that, uh, people are at risk of getting intracellular infections in particular. Um, so the atypical infections that people are at risk of are intracellular viral infections such as cytomegalovirus, um, protozoal infections such as pneumocystis, fungal infections such, such as aspergillosis and candida. How frequently are people followed up in transplant clinic later on um, and again what role will GPs have at that point when patients are being seen less frequently in transplant clinic? So at 12 months people are usually followed up once a month and by uh, five years they're usually followed up between uh, four and six monthly. If, if, the, if the patient is following an uncomplicated course, of course, the large majority of complications, therefore, will happen between those clinic visits. Mm. So the patient is more likely to present to the general practitioner than to the hospital, although some patients will, will self-refer and will ring the transplant team and say, I've got a problem. And the transplant team in that situation is usually very responsive and will provide an early review. So, the, so the, late, the later complications will include those complications which one can see early, where there's a change in graft function, which may be due to rejection or an infection. And then there are complications which can relate to immunosuppression and the increased risk in the medium to long term of the development of, of, of cancer. There's a number of cancers where there's an increased risk after transplantation. And we've, we've outlined that in the article. The key thing, the key point, I think, for, for outside of the specialist unit is to understand that any complication that occurs in a patient who's got a transplant or is immunosuppressed for another indication is a time-dependent emergency or semi-emergency because those patients will progress a lot more quickly than patients who aren't immunosuppressed. And presumably the same would be true for um, patients in hospitals potentially under acute medics or other um, specialists in hospitals. If if a patient with a renal transplant is admitted with any condition, you, you would um, encourage them to contact local nephrology team or and indeed the patient's transplant centre to update them and, and for advice. Yes, absolutely, Kate. One of the things that we've not outlined is the fact that um, most patients who get kidney transplants will go back to the long-term management of their local renal services. And all 
renal services will have transplant nephrology expertise. So, so there's usually one or more consultants within those services who will be transplant nephrologists for the service. So the local renal service will have that expertise and they should be the first port of call for discussion about patients where there's any complexity and any concern about their management. And again, just going back to sort of um, management in, in uh, sort of local GP surgeries, um, are there any particular sort of areas that um, you need to think about with patients who've had transplants? For, so, for example, sort of routine immunizations or any advice about women considering pregnancy um, that would be useful to know? Where patients are having immunosuppression, particularly tacrolimus or cyclosporin, are having a, a drug prescribed, a new drug prescribed, is to double check that there's no interaction because there's a range of drugs that can affect the blood levels, particularly of tacrolimus and cyclosporin, by either pushing that level up or bringing that level down. And both of those changes can be a big problem for a patient. This very commonly used drug, macrolide antibiotics, erythromycin and clarithromycin, um, commonly use antifungals, calcium antagonists. Uh, so it's important to note that uh, women of childbearing age on dialysis uh, are reported to have a low fertility. And actually after uh, a kidney transplant, fertility may be restored um, as renal function improves. Um, the problem facing patients after renal transplantation who are looking to conceive is that uh, the, the first year after transplantation is uh, is unstable in the sense that uh, drug levels and uh, renal function are not uh, at potentially their optimum levels, um, and actually it can be uh, it can be very dangerous both for mother and uh, and baby to. Uh, to conceive in the first year after transplantation. Um, the drugs that uh, we need to avoid are, are mycophenolate, which is, is teratogenic, and that should be converted to azathioprine three months before attempting conception. Um, um, in terms of contraception, um, the combined or, or contraceptive pill um, can increase tacrolimus and cyclosporin levels. Um, so, again, if these are being prescribed, it's worth liaising with the, uh, the specialist unit uh, to ensure these levels are within the therapeutic range. I was wondering if the um, sort of reduced fertility uh, seen in women on dialysis is also seen in, in men on dialysis? Men on dialysis have lower fertility than men who are not on dialysis, but men who are on dialysis are fertile, so they should be regarded as being fertile. The biggest challenge, in fact, for men who are on dialysis and indeed men in advanced renal failure is erectile dysfunction, which is which is very common. And is that something that uh, transplant can also address and improve? Or is there, are, there, are there any studies looking at that? There, there will be studies looking at it, I'm sure, but I can't quote them off the mm. top of my head. In, in, so so the, a practical pointer would be that it, it could actually go in either direction. So the balance of probability is the patient's less likely to have problems, male patient less likely to have problems with, with, with fertility and erectile dysfunction. But it could still, particularly with erectile dysfunction, be a complication, 
associated with the medications that the patients are getting. So again, it, 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 it should be something for any doctor involved in the patient's care to be aware of mm-hmm. and explore if necessary. Uh, one of the interesting points you note in the article is that um, obviously some people uh, living in the UK have had transplants previously outside of the UK or indeed um, travel abroad for uh, commercial living donations um, and that actually outcomes for these patients are often worse. Um, how common is it that doctors are likely to encounter these patients and particularly patients who maybe aren't plugged into renal services in this country? It's relatively common in in transplant services and specialist renal services particularly in parts of the country where uh, which have large populations of, of people of South Asian ethnicity because the large majority of the transplant tourism uh, comes out of South Asian communities, and South Asian communities have have a double hit on in terms of kidney problems. See, they they're more likely to develop end stage renal failure than people who are white. Firstly, and secondly, when they get end stage renal failure, they're less likely to receive a kidney transplant than people who are white. Uh, so their waiting time on the transplant list is longer. They're less likely to have uh, a family member or a friend coming forward as a potential living kidney donor. And therefore, it's relatively frequent for people to go overseas for transplantation, in particular to go to the major transplant centers in Pakistan and occasionally in India. Now, it is a matter of, of, of fairly major controversy because, of course, what we're talking about is people going abroad and paying local transplant units for their operation. And a component of that money will go to a local living donor who is often uh, economically profoundly deprived. Um, and the standard of care for those donors post-operative is 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 uh, is nil, and people have published on the bad outcomes for those individuals who are being paid to donate kidneys in the developing world. On the one hand, and on the other hand, then people who have gone from the UK and other countries overseas and come back to the UK for post-operative management do worse. So the paper we've quoted in the article is actually published. We published it within the West Midlands, and we reported around 40 patients who've gone overseas over a 10-year period. Um, and a quarter of those had bad outcomes by 12 months. They were either dead, they'd lost their transplants, or they'd acquired a very unpleasant viral infection, usually a hepatitis B or a hepatitis C infection, um, from their transplant tourism. So there are, there, there are, there are big risks associated with this and it's likely that those risks for many of those patients outweigh the benefits of them going overseas and having a transplant and we're very directed with individuals who tell us beforehand that they're looking at that as an option we counsel them that it's a bad option and we formally write to them and tell them that it's a bad option for them but people make choices based upon um, their own views and having kidney failure and being on dialysis is a 
tough place to be in for many people and one understands why people do make the choice of going overseas for transplant tourism if that's available to them. And I suppose related to that point, um, you mentioned the article at the end of 2015-16 there were 5,011 patients on the UK renal transplant list awaiting kidneys. Um, Is that number, presumably it is, but is it going to keep going up and how... Uh, we better going to meet this demand in the future? Well, it is coming down a little um, and there is more transplantation going on. That said, there are differences in approaches in different countries and in the UK, there is some anxiety that not everybody who should be given the opportunity to have a kidney transplant is offered that opportunity in a timely fashion and gets onto the waiting list. So we may be relatively conservative as a country in terms of putting people up for for, for transplantation. So it's important to realise that caveat. And then there are also issues around living kidney donation and having clarity around those pathways because at the moment we rely on the patient themselves to be their own advocate within their family and or for the relative or friend to pick up from, on the fact that living donation is an available option for them. So that, so, so we, we've got these very subtle trends overall in the amount of donation that's going on and also the numbers on the waiting list. But sitting underneath that, there are substantial issues for us in terms of maximising donation, both living donation and also deceased donation, for which there's been a lot of discussion over the last decade or two in the UK. You know, Wales has now opted out, and the early signals for Wales is that there's an increased number of donors starting to come out of Wales. Mm-hmm. And I think the rest of the UK are looking at that pretty carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, but also then <clears throat> we've got to continue to have this strong focus on living donation as well. You've been listening to Paul Cockwell and Tom Nieto talk about the clinical update, renal transplantation in adults. If you enjoyed this, you can find our full back catalogue of podcasts on SoundCloud, years worth of interviews which are free to access. You can also subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss out on future ones. Thanks for listening.